Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Okay, special Halloween edition for this week. I am dressed for the part. And um, I also wanted to uh, let everybody know, if you haven't seen it yet, I posted a video about Scientology ghosts and spooks and goblins and things uh, with some tasty L. Ron Hubbard quotes uh, that are pretty, pretty out there, pretty ridiculous. And I also uh, took advantage of a new feature, which is a premiere feature on YouTube where I can post a video at a particular time and then the first time it plays, we get to interact because there's a chat box there, just like there is when I do a live stream Q&A episode. Uh, but we only interact during the, before the ramp up to the video releasing, and then during the first showing of the video on my channel. So I gave that a shot this Thursday, and it was a lot of fun. It was actually, I thought, uh, pretty successful. And I wasn't sure what people were gonna think about all those L. Ron Hubbard quotes I threw in that video, but uh, people were, uh, correctly, appropriately disgusted and had some pretty funny comments about it. So anyway, check that video out. And also um, this week I did a, a more serious uh, podcast about what uh, some response to the pipe bomber situation here in the United States. And I, uh, you know, I guess some people might consider uh, some of what I was saying there a little bit of a rant, but whatever. It was, you know, it was honest, it was fact-based, and I felt that there were things there that needed to be said, and I didn't hear them being said anywhere else. So if you want to check that out, uh, I would, I, I think that would be a good thing to, to check out. And finally, um, Check that out. <laughs> okay, so that is the latest addition to my back wall, and it is a replica of Han Solo's blaster from Star Wars, uh, the original Star Wars. And this was produced by, uh, this is not a sponsorship or, or nobody's paying me to do this. In fact, the person who made this for me and sent it to me did so really out of the kindness of his heart, and I cannot even begin to appreciate or express my appreciation for how blown away I am by this by this mock-up. Um, but his name is Flint Reed, he lives in England, and you can contact him via Facebook. And uh, he does this kind of stuff. So anyway, I'm just kind of giving him a shout-out because I am, I am just blown away by this and I got a little display box for it and put it up because I thought that was appropriate to the quality of what he sent me. So thanks again, Flint, for that. All right, guys, let's go ahead and get on with answering your questions now. Vera Fox. Did L. Ron Hubbard actually give lectures in front of a live audience? Did he ever give the same lecture twice or was everything taped? When you listen to him, you get the feeling that he comes up with the things on the go. No way he could remember what exactly he was rambling about. In real life, if you give a lecture, you have to do it again and again yourself and you have to know your stuff. You cannot just send a tape for the next audience to listen to. But of course, Hubbard was too busy and important since he was already moving on after each lecture, doing new research. Thoughts? Well, I recently did an interview with Mark Headley where we talked about the sort of behind the scenes of producing L. Ron Hubbard's lectures or reproducing them as the case may be because they required a lot of editing and work over in order to restore them so that they could even be listened to because the original recording quality was so bad that we were lucky to have them at all. Um, Hubbard, 
obviously arranged for his for his uh, lectures to be recorded for for posterity purposes and so they could be sent out to you know he was touring around the country doing these lectures to various individual Dianetics and Scientology groups and it was a running record of his research or his latest developments or his really his latest imaginings as to how things would be also him, don't forget, he also would incorporate into these lectures, as though it was his own information, suggestions and ideas that other people had given to him. Uh, we've talked about this with the study technology that, that uh, Hubbard supposedly developed, which was actually given to him by a couple Scientologists the night before when they were having dinner. And then he went, and this was at, when he was at St. Hill in England, and he then pontificated about the misunderstood word and the importance of it in study when 48 hours before it had never been on his mind at all. So, you know, that kind of thing would also happen. Um, Hubbard's lectures are all one-offs as far as I know. I'm not aware of a single time that Hubbard went and repeated a lecture or, or speech that he had given before. And um, clearly, most of these were, you know, no notes. He prided himself on no notes uh, for his lectures. He would just kind of go at it off the top of his head. Only occasionally would he have little note cards or something. Um, I think at least when he commented on it, he was commenting on that when he was giving his, um, I think he gave two to three lectures a week at St. Hill in England when he had a whole mob of students there for years doing the St. Hill Special Briefing course. So I think the schedule was like Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, or Monday and Wednesday or something, and he was giving these lectures every week. And, um, and he would often joke about, you know, having notes or not having notes, but not the same lectures uh, ever. And um, these lectures were recorded and then, of course, duplicated and sent out all over the world to the various Scientology groups and organizations from England to Australia to Italy to Hawaii to Seattle to, you know, everywhere around. And they were sold. I mean, so this was a marketing, you know, income source for Scientology uh, and for L. Ron Hubbard. And I guess he collected royalties or something on that. So that was kind of the, the pattern he set up with giving his lectures. And um, there are there are quite a few lectures that are not have not been released or not releasable because the recording quality was so bad that the tapes just kind of fell apart or or aren't really in very good shape. As far as was he giving lectures in front of a live audience? Yes, he was. But as Mark Headley and I went over, sometimes that live audience was only a couple people. And then when they go back and they uh, edit these lectures, they put a uh, laugh tracks in, they put applause at the beginning and the end, they would um, alter his voice depending on what location he was in, the idea being that they were altering it to make it sound like it actually sounded in that location. But it's interesting because depending on what lecture series you're listening to from 1952, 1955, 1957, 1960, his voice sounds quite different in all these different venues. So I guess they have some audio thing that they were doing to, to make it sound that way, and they did that on purpose. You know, I don't know. I don't, I don't know that much about sound reproduction, but that's, that's as much as I know about why his voice sounds so different from one place to another. 
And of course, they heavily edited the lectures, as uh, Mark and I also went over. They, you know, Hubbard was, uh, would, would ramble on before lectures would even start, just talking to, you know, his friends and, and, and people in the audience and commenting on different people who were attending or different people who were involved in Scientology or, nat you know, being kind of like uh, what they call in Scientology nattering, almost use that word, um, you know, complaining, right, or just bitching about people. Uh, he would do that too. Sometimes he would praise individuals. Over the years, Hubbard slowly became more and more authoritarian with Scientology. It didn't start all, you know, all, it wasn't a black and white thing. It was a, a gradual uh, becoming worse and worse and worse over the years. So in the early years, you see Hubbard or you hear Hubbard uh, recognizing or acknowledging people who have assisted or helped along the way. He especially was, um, gave a lot of validation to his wife, Mary Sue. She was uh, quite the little go-getter and, and hard worker behind the scenes organizing things that he was incapable of, of organizing. He wasn't very good at that. So, um, so you'd hear some of that in the lectures, but they've been editing that stuff out too. So you don't hear any of that. You know, I was never exposed to, to a whole lot of that when I was in Scientology, but I've learned about a lot of that since. Okay, so, um, so that's kind of what I can say about that. Stephen Willis. I heard a former Scientologist say once that when they were being regged and had hit their credit card limit, that the registrar would take their credit cards and go make phone calls for a few minutes. More often than not, they'd come back having negotiated higher credit limits. One day this person, knowing that in their financial situation most banks wouldn't even consider giving them more credit, asked the reg how they managed it and were told that some Scientologists working in banks would often extend the limit if they knew it was paying for Scientology services. In spite of this being extremely poor conduct and something they'd quickly be fired over if they were ever found out, I can imagine how easily the complicit bank employee would justify it to themselves by thinking the cardholder would become more able to pay back the debt by doing Scientology. Is this sort of thing widespread in Scientology or a case of that particular reg having good contacts? Did you ever observe this activity where people who clearly shouldn't be given credit were? Also, isn't it funny that Scientology, since you know it's so amazing and all, doesn't just allow members to put the services on a sort of tab and let them pay it back when they gain all the benefits they're supposed to get? But nope, they always just seem to want the money up front. <laughs> well, yeah, of course they want the money up front. Scientology, remember, and I still will say this, is a money-making scam that uses religious cloaking and all the other window dressing and smoke and mirrors in order to justify and rationalize its existence to its members and give them the idea that they're having some kind of, you know, religious experiences or something, very highly spiritual experiences when they're, you know, going through trance induction and, and you know, hypnotic suggestion and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, and, and I don't, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, you know, to make a point here, but uh, Scientology is all about the money and the money comes first always. So, did I ever observe anything like that? Yeah, of course I did. Uh, that was not just something that was limited to, uh, I think, Australia, which is where you're asking from. Uh, no, this goes on all over the place, and I observed it all the time. In fact, this is kind of interesting because at the end of your question, you asked about, you know, why doesn't Scientology just extend people credit? Well, for a short period of time, in certain areas, they did. They actually set up a finance uh, credit union type of, type of deal 
uh, in uh, Los Angeles under Scientology Coordinated Services, which was part of the Mission Network, not part of the official Church of Scientology. This was in the late 70s that this went down, early 80s, right before the whole mission blow up where all these missions were taken apart and Hubbard decimated uh, the very productive people and, and organizations that were producing lots of incoming Scientologists during that time. He just wiped them all out and he wiped them out because he said they were ripping them off. And one of the things they did was they set up this credit union system where they would loan parishioners money in order to pay for Scientology services. This was a huge flap. It was like, what? You're doing what? Ah! And they were, that was all canceled and done away with. And it was probably a good thing that it was because Scientology as a church entity, uh, being associated with or running or, or being involved in running a, a, a credit union or some kind of a loan institution, uh, this is not a good mix. <laughs> you know, Scientology does not belong in the banking business. So this was, uh, if I, as far as I know, this was the brainchild of a man named Carl Barney, who was the mission holder, the person who was overall responsible for these missions in the Southern California area. From San Diego all the way through Santa Barbara, he ran all these missions. And this is where my parents worked when I was growing up. So I was running around uh, in these places uh, as a child. Uh, okay, so now as far as now or, or how things have run in Scientology with these credit cards, um, I never heard about calling a bank where a Scientologist worked. That I had not heard of before. That was new. But the idea of taking a person's credit card and going and making calls on their behalf to bump up their credit limits, oh yeah, this was, this was rampant. This was a, a habitual procedure. I saw this happen all the time in the Reg's offices. Um, they're called regs, by the way, because they are registrars. They're, that's short for registrar, which is if you have a book and you register a person's name, you sign their, their name in that book, then you're registering them. And that was the original or part of the original functions for these salespeople as they were signing people up for services. So that's why they're called regs and not salesmen. But that's basically what they are as salesmen. So I saw lots of instances where they were calling credit company, credit card companies. This became more difficult over the years and there were some abuses and no-nos which even were recognized within the church where they were like, yeah, no, stop doing that. The person has to call. You can't be calling for them. You can't be their proxy or something. Um, so then they were encouraged to do so. They were told and coached on what to say uh, in order to get their credit limits raised. Even when they thought it was impossible, the regs had a whole drill down on this is how you say it, this is what you say, this is what you ask for, and let's see if we can get this. Because the whole idea during a, a sales cycle in Scientology or a reg cycle is that, yes, you are going to become more able, more uh, causative, more uh, spiritually aware as a result of the auditing that you're going to be getting, or even as a result of the courses that you're going to be doing. So it's, a, it's, it's sort of taken for granted that you're going to be in a better place when you're done with the services. So anything you need to do in order to get those services is fully rationalized and justified by this, you know, claims of, of improvement. And it was only when people would fall for this a couple times, usually, and not be in a better place after their auditing was done. And then they're like, well, I can't, you know, come on, man, I can't afford this anymore. I don't want to do this. This is blowing my credit. You know, I, I, I'm too much in debt. 
And the logic of Scientology with this nonsense of you're going to be more able as a result of the auditing we're selling you, or the services we're selling you, this logic never stops. So you can just keep coming back at the guy with this. And he's like, yeah, but you, you know, it's not, they, Scientologists wouldn't necessarily sit there and say, well, you said that last time and get all weird. But they would, but they would definitely express their exasperation over this, and they'd be like, "Yeah, but, you know, I, I like it's sacrilege to say that's that's bullshit or that's not going to happen or I'm not going to be more able." So instead, you have to sort of come up with some other excuses to stave off the wedges, because they're just going to keep coming at you with this. And um, and as I said, after a few rounds of it, you kind of just start getting a little bit wary of walking by the wedge area, and you start going, "Oh, gee, you know." And, and it starts becoming more and more clear that, you know, this is a very money-centric activity. And that has caused plenty of people to just go out the door and never walk back in. So this, this, this you know, in a way, this, this greed, this avarice has caused a lot of people who were, who were committed Scientologists to, you know, just, just hit the road and never look back uh, over, over the years, of course. So... Uh, that's kind of the deal with that. They'll, they'll do and say anything in order to get this person a loan or extended credit or borrow money from his family or friends or other Scientologists. Now, there came a point, I will wrap up with this, there came a point where arranging loans of any kind, this was actually verboten in Hubbard's policies, but that didn't stop people from doing it, obviously. But it did, there, there, it wasn't just verboten according to Hubbard's policies. There came a point where Miscavige or somebody senior ordered, look, that's, that's it. That no more of this arranging loans. It is, it is completely, it just gets us into hot water. It gets us into trouble. That's it on that. And they would not allow that kind of activity to occur anymore. And Regis started to having to be more careful. That, as far as I remember, started happening in the early, mid-2000s, because that's when I was a reg, and that's, that's how I was told to, to, to handle that sort of thing, is, is no loan arranging. They have to, the parishioner has to work out getting the money. Now, that became a rule. I'm pretty sure that rule was dumped or violated many, many times afterwards when the basics came out. And, there was all that intense call center pressure to get sales no matter what. And during that period of time, credit cards were being banged even without the, the parishioner's uh, uh, permission. Uh, I saw a lot of people get in trouble for that because it would, of course, rebound on the church. I mean, it couldn't help it. That's an illegal act. I mean, you can go to jail for that. So the church had to, whoa, you know, stop, stop, you know, uh, when that started coming up. And they had to throw a couple sacrificial, uh, you know, salespeople on the, on the barbecue and, and roast them for that because uh, the church really could get in a lot, a lot of hot water for credit card fraud. So that's what I know about all that. Loki Goat. I was watching one of your older Q&A videos, number 15, I think it was. And noticed that when I watched a more recent one, your presentation had improved noticeably. Your cadence carried a more natural, relaxed tone to it, while still retaining the informative answers. And phrases like, thank you for the good question, were more common. It's more as if you were talking to an acquaintance as opposed to just someone asking something. In a word, happier. I wanted to ask if you've noticed this yourself, if you think this is a result of one or two things. 
Would you say it has more to do with just becoming more comfortable with creating video content as a whole and getting into an established pattern where you can grow and thrive? Or would you say it has to do with your distancing from Scientology and not having to focus on being uptone or what have you, essentially being able to break away from being a prim and proper Sea Org member as more distance is put between you and it? Thanks, Loki. Great question. Um, I gave this a little bit of thought because I have, of course, noticed changes and commented on them over the years as I've been out of Scientology. And, you know, I, I, often I look back at how I used to think or act or what I used to say and do and, and what I thought was important in life. And I see the changes and I, and I wonder, you know, are those changes as a result of just getting more exposure to the big wide world? meeting folks like you guys, interacting through the comments and, and the, the in-person interactions and social media. Uh, is it recovery from, the, you know, a destructive cult situation I was involved in for, for decades? Um, you know, is it a result of more education and learning all the things I've been learning and, and taking all this time to read all these books and pontificate on this stuff to you guys? and. And, uh, you know, what, it, or, you know it's, it's a combination, obviously, of all of these things is where this is kind of leading, I think. Um, and I, I think that uh, I have shed a great deal of the Scientology, what they call beingness, <laughs> this sort of like the mask that you put on, the, 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 you know, I'm a Scientologist now, and, you know, this sort of like always straightening my spine, and, you know, I'm so big and tall and proud because I'm a Scientologist and so this is how I'm supposed to be. I, I, think, I've, I think I've lost a lot of that, you know, um, and that's a good thing, that's a very good thing. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, I'll have my uh, lazy days or I'll have, you know, times when I'm still kind of, when I'm, when I'm kind of slacking off a little bit here and there and, and those, you know, and, I, and that old work ethic kicks in. Um, you know, I'm still a very hard worker. I mean, so for me, slacking off is probably, when I say that, you probably get a very different idea than I get. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, being a couch potato for an hour, not going to the beach and surfing all day or something. I mean, that's not, to me, that would be completely unrealistic. I'm not ever going to do that. But, uh, you know, but I will, I will take some time in the middle of the day and just give myself a break every now and again. And that's, that's a good thing. Um, and I've learned to not be so frantic about that kind of thing or, or down on myself about it. So there's still a lot of stuff that I am down on myself about or that I have attention on or I want to want to do something about. Um, I still have a lot, tons of attention on the, the big wide world and trying to make it a better place any way I can. Um, I'm, I'm often frustrated at my lack of reach to people, you know, I want, I want to reach more people and I'm, I'm doing everything I can to, to make that happen. So, so those are the things that kind of worry me somewhat, but in terms of making videos and talking on a, on a channel here, I have definitely gotten way more comfortable with this whole thing and setting up my studio space here has been, has been really kind of helpful in that regard, but this is, of course goes, goes earlier than that. There is a routine I am in uh, now with my channel. I have a schedule and that schedule, probably putting that schedule in place was a life-changing event for me because I have to meet those 
those targets. I have to meet those marks, right? On, on Thursday, I got to post a video. On Saturday, I got to post a podcast. And on Sunday, I have to do these critical Q&A videos. So my life revolves around that schedule for the most part. And I time things and work out research schedules and stuff um, and other things in my life around all of this. This is the top priority in my life. Uh, well, it's the second most top priority in my life. <laughs> my top priority in my life is my relationship with my wife and and uh, and and me. You know, getting myself uh, educated and informed and and uh, and living a, you know a good happy life. That's my top priority. And if anything, actually, now that I sit here having said that out loud, that would probably be reflective of the biggest change of attitude or priority that I have had over the last five years is my, where I went from work, my work being the single most important thing in my life and everything revolved around that work. My personal life was second to it. My marriage at the time was secondary to my work. My personal life seeing my family, of course, my interactions with my son, all of that took a backseat to work. And now my work is really important to me and I put a lot of work into my work but it's not the most important thing in my life. <laughs> and so I think I've been able to relax more and take it a little easier and be a little less serious about all of it. And I think that's probably what you see reflected in the change over the years of my videos. So thanks for asking about that and allowing me to, uh, to talk about this because it's always helpful for me to kind of look at, at things and and review what what sort of positive things have have happened over the last few years uh, because like everybody else I think I tend to focus more on negatives than positives and it's helpful to be reminded of the positives. Queen B777 Was Obnosis put into play to convince one that he or she didn't know what was real? If so, I never got that or felt that way and in looking back on it now I wouldn't say that was the purpose of obnosis. Now, let me define what this is. Obnosis is a coined word in Scientology for observing the obvious. That's what the term means. And it's a drill that people will do in Scientology. Um, I mean, it's a word people use. It's not a well-used word. It's, it's a sort of a medium-used word, you know. Um, it's not used as much as, say, ARC or, you know, the tone scale or something like that or being theta or the spirit of play. I mean, there's all these other little expressions in Scientology. Obnosis is a word that Scientologists are familiar with, though, because they tend to get um, to doing these, what are called obnosis drills, fairly early on in Scientology. And these drills involve, uh, you know, sitting in a room and having a coach tell you, okay, look in that corner or look at that thing and tell me what you see and you have to communicate to your coach only what you can perceive of this object. Like for example, there's a, if there was a chair here and it had four legs and a back, and I said, well, there's a chair here and it's got four legs and a back, but maybe from my vantage point, I couldn't actually see four legs. I could only see three or maybe even only two. So the coach might challenge me. He might say, well, do you actually see four legs? And I'd say, oh, yeah, no, not, no. I'm, I'm. He's like, okay, well, no assuming anything. It's a drill that if, if, if there's any purpose to, the, to doing obnosis drills, it's to uh, break a person of assuming 
things and actually being aware of what their eyes or ears are perceiving and not assuming, not, not filling in the blanks or inferring anything. That's kind of how I've always, you know, sort of uh, executed that drill, used it, and I, f I felt that actually it was kind of helpful in regards, in, in, in the way that you would kind of re, you know, it was a way of looking at your environment and going, oh, I hadn't noticed that before, or oh, I make assumptions about things. You know, it's not auditing. You're not supposed to have, you know, big cognitions or realizations, uh, you know, about life and yourself by doing this drill, but it happens. And if you're the kind of person who just sort of takes things for granted or assumes a lot of things or infers things rather than actually pays attention to what you're looking at or what you're hearing, then doing omnosis drills might be, you know, kind of helpful in that regard. All it really is is looking at things and saying what you see. So this isn't like some deep, heavy mind control process, okay? This is not like there's no hidden things going on there. It really is that simple. And that's why I sort of thought, mm, yeah, no, I don't think it's really an attempt to try to con people into thinking that they don't face reality or something. If anything, after doing these kind of drills around this hypnosis idea, you're kind of more aware for a little while of your environment. You start noticing things you hadn't noticed before. I don't think it's spiritually enlightening or, you know, some kind of like uh, life-changing event. So that's, that's my explanation for hypnosis. Rob Kupitz was curious how marriages are handled in Scientology. Do they just see a justice of the peace and get married? Or is there a formal wedding process or procedure laid out in Scientology's rules and regulations? And if it is done at the church, who does it? Is there a designated person or branch that does weddings? Good question. So, um, yes, the Church of Scientology does have formalized wedding procedures. There's a one-ring and a two-ring ceremony. I remember those off the top of my head. I don't remember. that. I know there's those two ceremonies. I think there might be two or three others. These are just things Hubbard dashed off, uh, sort of copying standard, stereotypical wedding vows kind of things, and then incorporating Scientology into it. So, like, for example, in the ring ceremony you you know you hold up the ring and you kind of imagine a little arc triangle in the ring and and you put it on this is us joining together in arc and so you know and there's a lot of emphasis on communication and the importance of communication in a marriage and of course there's nothing wrong with that marriage is you know is all about communication um so there is a minister uh there's a minister's course in Scientology. Any Scientologist can do it. And if they do that course and they go through a little ordination process, then they are ordained ministers in the Church of Scientology. And because it's a recognized religion, and and, and this is they even got this power in England where it's not a recognized religion, but they have marriage powers over there now. Uh, through all throughout the United States, you know, of course, in Australia, you have uh, you know Scientology ministers can perform marriages. And, uh, but they have to do this, this course in order to do it. Not because the law says so, but because Scientology says so. And the post on an, in, a, in a church, the person, the staff member who would do it is the chaplain. And this is a person who's in Division 6B last time I checked. Uh, not that that really means a whole lot. It's just a public-facing division of the organization. And the chaplain is there mostly to resolve conflicts and difficulties going on between parishioners, but chaplains also will do marriages if they're asked. 
any, you know, my dad was a minister, but he was not holding the chaplain post. And he did marriages. I think he married like two or three couples. So, you know, it's fairly commonplace that if, you know, you just find a Scientologist that you like, who's a friend or something, who's a minister, ministerially trained, and they will perform your wedding ceremony. Scientologists do not have to stick with L. Ron Hubbard's wedding vows. They can write their own and often do. Um, and that is pretty much how Scientology weddings work. They're, they look very much, they look and sound and feel very much like any other wedding. People get all dressed up and they go through all the stuff and the families come and there's presents. I mean, that it's a usual sort of customary traditional wedding situation. There are plenty of Sea Org members who didn't have the time or money or inclination to have a big formal wedding. And they will often go to a Justice of the Peace or to, like I, when I was in the Sea Org, we went to Vegas. I, you know, my first marriage, we got married in the Chapel of Love at Circus Circus. So, uh, and that was not even a Scientologist performing the ceremony. So they don't even have to do a Scientology ceremony or be married by a Scientologist in order to get married. Nobody really, nobody really in the end, nobody cares about that, you know. Uh, in the Sea Org, you just want to get married because you want to have sex, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so uh, that's 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 generally speaking why people you know get get hooked up in the Sea Org and then they just kind of make a go of it and sometimes it sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, so that's that's what I can say about all that. Ah. Little Freddie Mercury for you there. All right, it's time for flash answers. Michaela Reedmuller. When having doubts about the gibberish, how did you rationalize it? Was that an instant reflex or did you have to think about it for a while? When I had doubts in Scientology about the tech or the language or the procedures or whatever it was that I was having issues with, like everyone else, as I've gone over in my channel many times, I experienced cognitive dissonance and I would usually resolve that dissonance, that noise in my head or discomfort by just sort of pushing it aside and not thinking too much about it. Not a very conscious or conscientious process. People don't have to think about resolving cognitive dissonance. They just do it. It's sort of so I guess the answer to your question is that it was sort of an instant reflex like it is with, with most people. Um, it takes real effort and uh, you know it, it takes edu you know, a, an educated point of view and, and effort to overcome cognitive dissonance for the most part. Uh, so uh, it was only after I started learning about how bad things really were that I was able to overcome that sort of instant reflex of, oh no, Hubbard knows what he's talking about. It's all good. You know, you just have to have faith, basically. I never, I never used that expression, but basically that's what I was telling myself or conceptualizing to rationalize the, you know, the noise in my head. Stephen Willis. How is His Holy Lordship 7 dealing with the move? Does your new apartment have his royal ascent yet? Yes, actually the first week we were here, Seven, our cat, was hiding out in the bathroom. He was, he hides in cabinets and cupboards and he, and we had to put child locks on the kitchen cabinets in order to keep him out of those. Uh, or he'll hide under the couch. And for the first week he was very timid about coming out. But now he's the master of all he surveys as usual. And uh, we just pretty much service him in his apartment and, and are happy that he allows us to stay here. Bill Quigley. Did you receive a clear bracelet from the Church of Scientology when you achieved the state of clear? If so, then do you still have your clear bracelet 
and how much would you sell it for? <laughs> yes, I did purchase a clear bracelet. They don't give you one. Uh, this is it. It's right here. This is my clear bracelet. It's got an inscription on the back. Uh, CJS, my initials, and it says July 2nd, 1993, number 42,556. That was my clear number uh, back in 1993. I don't know what the clear, every single clear has a number assigned to them, and uh, that comes from their local church who are given a block of numbers to issue when they make clears, and they, and they dish them out so that way there aren't repeats around the world. So. Uh, so anyway, I still have my clear bracelet, and I have never really considered selling it. Um, but, you know, if somebody actually wants this from me, contact me, make me an offer, and we'll see where it goes. But I, I will forewarn you right now that this is not going to come cheap. I, this is actually a uh, kind of a milestone um, possession for me, because it signifies, there's a lot of things signified with this. Not good things at this point, but yet important things for me. So uh, that's why I've held on to it all these years. Okay, everybody, thanks for coming around and watching the show. Leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the comments section below. And do leave me your questions. I am actually looking for more flash answer questions right now. So if you have any of those, uh, throw them my way because I like short little uh, questions to answer too. Uh, but regardless, I look forward to hearing from you guys. Thanks for coming around and consider supporting my channel through Patreon if you are not currently doing so because that is what allows me to do all of this and answer your questions every week. All right, guys. Bye-bye.